last time I saw, I saw she was in hospital. She was so beautiful because when she was not in hospital, her face was very tired, determined and tired. Something incredible when she was in hospital, as if the whole body relaxed and it became filled with light, something very beautiful. And the, the tenseness or the fatigue when she was not in hospital, but when she was, there was a sort of beauty that was there, which was, which was extraordinary. What did you, did you read her, remember the letters or the journals that were published afterwards where she described this, this dark night of the soul that she had been going through for so long? I was upset. But she had said, none of this should be printed. So Catherine Spink, who was very close to mother, mm. um, we were quite unhappy that her will was not respected. Mm. And then, of course, it became, you know, she'd lost faith, you know, in Time magazine. And, uh, but somewhere... They were using that to push the postulators and, and so on. So personally, I was quite upset because people must respect the will of people. And, and that was, she was very adamant about that. And when, you know, and Catherine had the same experience, Catherine Spink, who was the first person who wrote a book about, about Mother. And, you know, there was always a, a glow of peace you know, when, yes. at, when she was at Mass. And, mm. and, uh, and every time I was in Calcutta, I would I'd be at Mass just next to her. And, and uh, so the people don't understand what she was saying. Mm. And it's not a loss of faith, it's a lot of a a loss of emotional faith. Yeah. But, but like, she, like, uh, like Therese of, of these years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I thought it, I didn't know that she had said that she didn't want it published. I would agree with you, one should respect people's wishes. But the outcome probably was it deepened the understanding of her holiness yeah, and what yeah, holiness yeah, was. Yeah. It wasn't. She wasn't walking yeah. around with a yeah. direct line yeah. to God yeah. Yeah. all the time. You know, she was struggling with her own yeah. Yeah. Uh, internal yeah. Yeah. process. Yeah. And uh, that, that seemed to me to really deepen and strengthen her yeah. holiness. But yeah. anyway. Did you, and you met B. Griffiths, of course, didn't you? Did you meet Father B? Yes, once. Anyway, the story about the delinquents and the, oh, yes, all yes. that got resolved. I did. The, the, the brothers, <laughs> sorry, uh, the young women who had been prostitutes, they have their place. Now it's a formation for some brothers oh. of some religious order who 
will not be jumping over. <laughs> and then she gave us a, a, a very beautiful, well, we have our community there. Yes, yes. So that I didn't want to leave the story with the delinquents and the young prostitutes. Yeah. <laughs> I was, and uh, the, the, your the lush in Kerala, where is that? Is there one uh, or more in Kerala? No, there's one. There's the one in Kerala. Yeah, Calicut. Ah, Calicut. Yeah. Nandi Bazaar. That's right. Beautiful community. And I, I remember visiting that uh, some years ago, and one of my first extended visits to Lush community, and and um, got a sense of the emotional. Um, What's the word? And I held a skelter in a way because it's a very lovely moment. We were blessing the, we were blessing the, the you know, building, laying the foundation of a new building, I think. And it was a lovely, peaceful moment, and all the members were there. And suddenly, something triggered this quite um, very moment, momentary, but quite, quite violent moment, and uh, and it passed so quickly. But I could, it was an introduction to me, really, to the, the challenge of the life, you know, because you think everything was nice and calm and beautiful, and suddenly this wave of emotion came from apparently nowhere. But I remember the, the couple who, who ran that, I don't remember their names, I'm afraid, but... Subayam, maybe. Subayam, yes, that's right. It was, it was a Catholic woman and Yanan. a Hindu man. Yananda and uh, Subayam. Yeah. And they were an amazing couple. They, they ran the uh, life. <coughs> and they had several children who lived there as well. It was a beautiful family relationship. But they told me that, um, that they had been able to start meditating together <coughs> as a couple even as a family, and it was the first time that they had really been able to bridge the religious uh, divide and see it as an enrichment rather than a, you know, a challenge. Mm. You were saying today, uh, yesterday, about how many young people today have not received, you know, have no faith or haven't, haven't received this transmission of the faith that most of us would be familiar with. Where do you think we go from there? Where does, and where does Christianity, where does the church go from there? Because if we rely only upon that traditional transmission of the faith, then the, the church is going to, which is essential, of course, but that, the, the church is going to shrink. Now, it, it shrinks and it expands throughout history, that's true. But the shrinking, the shrinkage could mean that all those without faith uh, are going to feel excluded. They're going to feel there's nothing for them there. And I think many young people do feel that. They look at traditional forms of Christian life and parish life and so on, and there's just very little that they can relate to. Um, 
I mean, there are ex many exceptions, and then, of course, there are young people who do have received a transmission of the faith from their family or friends, or discover it uh, in other ways, maybe receive that gift or that spark of faith from, from friendship or from a teacher or whatever. But more and more young people, I think, uh, grow up with a spirituality that's not, not touched by that transmission directly. So how, how do you see the future in, in that kind of world? Good question. I would say a lot of young people, there's a question of expectancy. Uh, and they're open to expectancy. Something might happen. Um, so how to gear upon expectancy? Mm. A sense that something might happen. Uh, many of them are falling into pits which are pretty close to forms of despair. Remember a young one man telling me his need for, for drugs. And it touched me to, to listen to him. The, the loneliness, the, the whole reality of society, and the, the cleavage between the rich and the poor. Between mm. those who have found something and those who haven't. And so the word expectancy. Mm. They're waiting for a surprise. So what can that surprise be? Uh, it's obviously because it's a surprise I don't know. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's, so what, I think one of the questions we don't ask in modern Western society or I don't know, anywhere where the drug you know, the drugs have become so much part of life, especially for the young, is why? You know, there's this war on drugs and how do we do drug education and... But it, uh, it's like seeing young people smoke cigarettes. I mean, they know as well as anybody that smoking is bad for you, but they still smoke and you still see people on TV, you know, young actors and TV programs uh, smoking, giving that model. So, but the question that's, that's very rarely approached by politicians or maybe by other educational institutions is why is there this need for drugs? Anguish. 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 The only time I feel it, please. <coughs> mm. So there's an expectancy. And expectancies, like <clears throat> at the uh, terrorist attack in Paris, mm. <clears throat> um, at the Bataclan, which was a dance club. Mm. And the next day on, uh, on internet, there was a, a letter 
written by uh, Antoine Lévis. And uh, he said, you know, you've killed the person who is the most beautiful, the dearest to me. You killed my wife. And now I'm with my son Mathilde, who's three. But you shall not have my hate. Mm. You shall have not even my anger. Because I want to live and let people to live. Here was a reaction from a, a young man. Mm. I don't know how old he could have been, young, younger than that. But that amazing reaction, and it came through whole of France. I mean, everybody saw that. I will not hate. Mm. So, from the conflict, something happens. Mm. Something happens. And when we touch the bottom, like a movement started in France called Coexiste. And it came at a moment when there was a group of um, young anti-Muslim people were marching. And then there was another group <coughs> pro-Muslim. Some kids thought, you know, what could happen? So what flowed from that was a movement called Coexiste. And the president is a young Muslim woman. There's one Christian, one Muslim, and one Jew. And they've been going through the colleges, the college or universities or lycées, uh, to talk about it. So what I'm saying there is that out of danger, mm. out of conflict, there can be an immediate reaction. This must not be. And as I say with Antoine Leys, this shall not be. Mm. You shall not have my hate. So the, the whole reality of conflict can bring out uh, the worst but it can bring up also the, the best. It can be the crisis that, that, that people are expecting. I think so much of modern life is so easy in a way, yeah. and it's so, in a way, addictive, television, yeah. Yeah. internet, games, sedentary, very introspective, very isolating, and boring. I mean, what makes, basically makes life interesting is is interaction, community, uh, you know, going out from oneself and discovering oneself in others and so on. And I think, you know, for so many young people, the, their formation, education, is, is, lacks that stimulus. So maybe this expectancy that you're talking about is it's related also to, I think, an essential religious aspect of the human, which is the innate sense of wanting something more. That even if we have our desires satisfied, we get all the things we want, materially or even sexually or in other ways, we're still not satisfied. There's, there's this hunger, this expectancy really for transcendence. And maybe that's what leads to people getting into drugs. But if a crisis intervenes, such as you're describing, and a crisis that's partly brought about by the very decadence of the culture and its lack of transcendence, which I think that's really what decadence means, it's seeking 
this something more in the wrong place, then uh, a crisis will happen, either from outside or within, and that crisis, as you say, can generate uh, a way out and a way, a way beyond. So what we're saying is from pain will rise up something new, yes. from pain. And we brought that up last night. Mm. Uh, yes. yeah. The father uh, who had from hardness become. And so we're talking somewhere about the cross, yeah. because the cross is a crisis. Mm. And through the crisis, Something must come. Somebody who is always deeply movement is Nelson Mandela. How could that man, 28 years in prison, 22 years hard labor, in his cell, how was his certitude that would rise up something new? So, in his flesh, he knew that we cannot rest in pain, there must be something else. So I believe it's as close we get to pain, death, uh, the impossible, we have to remember that the first document about uh, human rights came after the atomic bomb on Auschwitz. Did we have to go to Auschwitz and to the atomic bomb? Mm. So that suddenly we get together to say every person is important. Mm. So the history of humanity is a history of crisis, of death and resurrection. Because for the disciples, it was a huge crisis with the death of Jesus will be talking a bit about that a little later on in the morning, how we moved from Jesus kneeling at our feet and then moving on to the cross and then a hope is born. So we mustn't run away from crisis but must be prepared to see what new will come. Also the crisis, when it comes, has to be a genuine crisis that takes us by surprise yeah. Yeah. rather than a crisis that we generate uh, for our own benefit or think that we can control things better. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a kind of false crisis that yeah. has, has entered into the modern political mind too, I think, sort of thing that, that, that Russia is doing, really, bringing about crisis in Syria, bringing about crisis in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, indifferent to all the personal suffering that that causes, but it's, it's a false crisis because it, it's, it's, it's imposed. But th this um, young man you were talking about after the attack in Paris, uh, it reminded me of a moment during the troubles in Northern Ireland, it's probably about 20 years ago, it was a terrible um, uh, IRA attack on a, 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 a Remembrance Day service in, um, what's the name of the town? I forget, in Northern Ireland. And it was, it was, I think, the worst atrocity that they had carried out. And of course, it killed 
his, uh, children and so on. One of the children who was killed, um, the father was kneeling, I think kneeling beside her, or speaking, the journalist came up to him soon after, and he spoke these words of forgiveness that were so utterly astonishing and genuine that uh, it was stronger, it really did defuse the, the terror and the, the evil uh, of, of the attack. And it was, uh, and it, it, it's still what people remember, it, because it was extraordinary in a way. Terrorist attacks uh, are not extraordinary, they've always been them, they've always been there, there'll always be violence. What's extraordinary is uh, people who rise to the occasion and, and are inspired really to, to speak out of this uh, power of forgiveness. Yeah. So a tentative to pain, like the community coexiste. Rising up in Paris now are little communities for people off the streets uh, called APA. And there are now 19 communities um, where there are eight or nine people from the streets and, uh, and uh, four volunteers. And that's just in Paris, but it's spreading throughout France in communities called Lazare. So it's, you get to a point where something has to be done. And so rises up. And to be attentive, this is the presence of God. As people coexiste or be these communities of APA, which are extraordinary. And things will be coming up about refugees, people uh, opening up and discovering, because when it becomes too much, then there's the discovery of a new presence of God through people. And I mean, the whole reality of the, um, the world community, it'll rise up more as people are, uh, as religiosity is slowing down, but spirituality is opening up. It's uh, that, that, that tension or that movement. And so lots of things will be coming. And to be attentive to be the places of pain, because something will rise up from there. I mean, these, these, these uh, crises and violence, terrorist attacks happening all over the world. And, but France has been targeted, particularly in the last couple of years. And uh, it seems to me somehow significant that we're here for the seminar with you 25 years later in France as we pray and plan to establish the our new center, our new home here in France. And uh, it's a strong feeling for me and I think for many of us that, that we're being led to this, you know, we're following the lead of the spirit and this is, it seems right and we're very happy with it. 
but from what you say, I, I think it's significant that that we should be here, and I hope that we will be able to collaborate and, and share um, in the years to come. Because um, as you, it is in these places where the wounds are felt most deeply. You can either get, well, you will get, you know, a right-wing reaction and uh, hatred and so on. But equally, there will be a, uh, a reaction of grace. A reaction of grace. And, and a new universalist vision. You know, um, Simone Weil, one of the passages of Simone Weil, not the education minister, but the, the other one. <laughs> the other one. <laughs> I got very confused. Where was I? It was a French conference. I was talking about Simone Weil. And they said, well, Simone Weil? I didn't know she said that. Anyway, the, 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 the original Simone Weil has this wonderful f phrase, la nouvelle sainteté. And she said, we need today a new holiness which will be appropriate to the conditions of our time. And she has this beautiful passage where she describes, and when this new holiness is manifested, it will be like a new creation. And it will sweep away all the dust and confusion that has covered up uh, reality, covered up the world, and we'll see it clean and shining and bright as, as it should be. It's beautiful passage and um, how would you how would you describe what do you think she means by this new holiness well, I, just as you were speaking there I was thinking of Auschwitz yes. and from Auschwitz rose up Etty Hilson mm. and um, what strikes me is Etty Hilson is is opening up passages and things extraordinary. And, uh, from the war in Algeria, rises up Christian, Christian de Sergi. Hmm. And so, what are, what are the specifics of these? Etty Hilson, Christian de Sergi. It's coming out of this. this this high tension of hate, the presence of God. And so what is the, what strikes me with Etty Hilson is that she's a Jew, not really a practicing Jew, but she's discovered God. Then a book has just come out by a Muslim lady, whom you might know. I'm not quite at Alzheimer's yet, but I'm heading there. It's Marina uh, Berger. And this young Muslim lady, um, she went into a bookshop. She's written a book of my contact with Etty. She picked up the book and she went through uh, a metanoia. Here is a Jewish woman who's found a woman freedom to be in relationship with God and to have a communion with God. And she said, this is what I've been looking for. And this is a Muslim lady mm -hmm. from 
Algeria. Uh, and then Eti, who's a Jew. So this interreligious element of discovering a God, a God who loves us and is in love with us. And so this newness, and I mean, things are happening, but they're frequently small, but to be attentive, to be attentive because from there, little sources of grace are beginning to flow. I mean, I was very touched by the text of origin that you mentioned yesterday and the text of John Main in the text we wrote. Origin says it's, prayer is not uh, seeking or asking requests from God. It's to become God. And then John Main said, let, let it flow. The love of the Father for the Son, the whole mystery of the Trinity, that all we have to be is let it flow, that all prayer is the prayer of Christ. I was very moved by the text of John Main, but we're, we're finding something similar in this with Christian de Sergi, avec Etty Hilsom, the Jew, Kareba uh, Berger, who's this Muslim lady, and, and so things are happening. And all that, and then the, your little house in, uh, little or big, uh, <laughs> house in, in near Poitiers. I mean, things are happening, things are happening. But they're not always hitting the headlines, but there's, there's a, a flow that is there. And I believe that the communities here, your communities will, will grow. It's, and, you know, to catch on to, what Origen said and John Main says, you know, to enter into the flow. Because the flow of God is a flow of bringing people to oneness. And so lots of things will be coming up, like Appa, Coexiste. I mean, it, and if you look at all of them, it's about bringing two people together in hope, but with a hope which is founded upon a presence of God. Etty, um, one of the passages that struck me most was when she, in her diaries or journal, where she says she was, she was going to the, um, back to the people in the, who had already been rounded up and put in the detention camp. And she was running errands between them and the and their family members who were still at home waiting for the knock on the door. And of course the mood was, was very intense and anguished and angry. And they were being very graphic in their anger against the, uh, the German soldiers who were rounding them up so brutally. And just expressing their hatred for these soldiers. And she said to them, out of what she had discovered in herself, she, she told them, uh, you know, that's not doing anyone any good. 
to just turn just to turn yourself into a stream of hatred towards these German soldiers, and um, she describes them. But actually, as, as Simon Weil in one passage also describes seeing this, this sort of the Nazi demon, really, in the eyes of some young Germans, and in the same way, uh, unable to hate. So, Etty said this to her friends and family members, and they scoffed at her and said, <laughs> that sounds very Christian. <laughs> and then the best part of it, there was in, she apparently just sort of shrugged her shoulders and said, well, maybe it is. So, you know, what? so what? If you put the Christian label on it or, or any other label on it, it doesn't cease to be true. And I thought that that could be a manifesting of this new holiness, which is, a, for Simone Weil, was, a, was, was about something universalist, something universal, not uh, restricted, I mean, present in every manifestation of faith, but not as it, n n none of those religious faiths had the monopoly on it. Yeah. I think I think what he means by the Paschal mystery in terms of of meditation is uh, that when we meditate, we're following the gospel and the call to discipleship. Very interiorly, very in a very solitary way, but we are following it very very as fully as we can, which means leaving self behind, leaving all our possessions behind. No one can follow me unless they leave all their possessions behind. Well, like the rich young man, that, that we, we might think that means we should all become, take a vow of poverty and, and uh, have no material possessions like Francis uh, of Assisi did, although he was one of the it wasn't sustainable uh, for his community to live like that, but he was a wonderful manifestation of that material poverty. But I, don't, I think uh, we discover through a contemplative journey, meditation, what that most deeply means. That it means that we have to let go of our own self-consciousness, our habitual self-fixation, and we do that by letting go of all the thoughts, plans, memories that we possess, or that possess us. And as a result of that poverty of spirit, 
And that's what the mantra leads us into, is poverty of spirit. As a result of that, we live with greater detachment in the material world and in our emotional life and, and in our mission and in our work. So it has a, an immediate overflow influence in the way we live. So I think, and this poverty of spirit that we enter into in meditation is mystically and theologically very much the same poverty that Jesus entered into. Though rich he became poor for our sake and was obedient even unto death. So the poverty of spirit is a, is a, is a letting go a recentering of our consciousness outside of the ego realm of orbit and a uh, and an entering into this obedience which is not of course just doing what you're told but it's listening and Jean spoken a lot about listening and the need to be silent in order to listen well obedience the first word of the rule of Saint Benedict is listen and his first vow is obedience, letting go of one's own will, taking up the strong and glorious weapons of obedience. So I think we are, as we listen to the mantra, we are being obedient, and that is the work of silence. And it's not a work that is just contained within that half hour of meditation, twice a day or so, but uh, is transformative. it changes, it changes us, and therefore changes the the way we live. So I think that's that's the personal and the human discovery of death and resurrection. But this is a a cosmic truth as well, and all of the great wisdom traditions and texts refer to a cycle nature and life operates through a, a cycle like the seasons uh, we're moving now into autumn today is the first day of autumn I think here uh, in Western Europe um, and we, we have the sense now of moving into another season and we, when we'll go into deepest darkest winter and then we come out into spring and so on so we live in this cycle that is nature, that is life. And it, it is also a cycle that is visible in history, in politics, and in cultures, and in institutions. They rise and fall. And in the I Ching, for example, is a Chinese Buddhist text, a uh, Chinese uh, wisdom text, uh, one of the most ancient, even Confucius, was writing commentaries on the I Ching. Uh, the whole principle of the I Ching is this f flow between yin and yang, between, uh, and life is seen as a continuous, day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath, century by century. Uh, these are all different expressions of this, of this process of growth uh, a movement to completion, to fullness, and then a decline. Now, I think the Christian insight and what is 
unique about, about Christ, actually, is that this cycle, both within the, the individual mind and soul and in society, hasn't changed, continues. But the way Christ lived this and revealed it also transcends it, just as he transcended karma, the law of karma. I mean, the law of karma is, is a universal law. If you do something bad, bad things will result from it, although good things can come out of it too. But So we have moral responsibility for everything we do. But there is a higher law than karma revealed in Christ from the cross, which is forgiveness. And this transforms the debt that we owe to the natural cycle through our moral responsibility for the things we do. The guilt you know, that we, we carry or that we earn, that is taken away. Take, he takes away the sins of the world. So I think this cycle, death and resurrection, is universal, personal, and universal. But in Christian faith, we have this, uh, this insight, really, it's just the best word, I think, that although it is still turning, we are also capable of transcending it, being free from it. John, a question for you. Um, I'm curious about the origins of the same that you've been referring to um, throughout our days together, but also elsewhere. And that saying is, uh, you are more beautiful than you dare believe. I'm just, um, just curious about where that particular saying come from. Did it come from an encounter with someone, or are you basing it on a scriptural passage or whatever? I would say it's the whole fundamental reality of life. That we welcome people who are crushed by humiliation. So we're not there to teach them. We're not there to do things for them. We're there to reveal and to reveal precisely that. Either through the body, like we welcomed in this community. I spent a year with him, Eric, who was blind and deaf. Little guy, 18 years old. Immense amount of anguish, because he had been abandoned into the hospital. And so somewhere, the whole relationship is a relationship where he, because he had been abandoned young, um, uh, he had this terrible anguish of who was he, who, to whom did he belong to, he belonged to no one, you know, he had spent long years in hospital. Uh, so the whole reality is 
the movement from generosity to revelation. So, I mean, that is just something that has grown up right from the beginning to reveal to people that they don't have to be something, they don't have to be someone. What is important is they're more beautiful than they can imagine or dare to believe. So I would say that it's somewhere contained in the ethos. That doesn't mean to say that they don't have to be helped for this or that, but fundamentally. But that should not just be for Lash, it's for everybody. How can we meet people and uh, believe that they have something to give to me? Because they're more beautiful. And that goes in a little bit further. You brought up the whole question of Atma being at the heart of it. And I, I use the word the primal innocence. The discovery that every, in every person, their personhood is their primal innocence. And somewhere it's, you are more beautiful than you dare believe, it's somewhere in you. There's that primal innocence that, which has been covered over. So I would say it's just in the ethos of something that has grown up uh, right from the beginning. But the verbalization, okay, I think it was lived a long time before it was verbalized, the actual expression. I know living in one of the foyers where there was Lucien who taught me about my violence, where there was uh, Eric who was blind, and I learned so much. And uh, it's a relationship through the body, the way we look, the way we touch, the way we listen, uh, revealing to Eric who is so convinced that he's no good. So it's to break through the crust. In a way, it's the light flowing through the crack. So I, I believe, but that is something which is enhanced through meditation. And uh, I, I mentioned the in Buddhism, one of the first things is uh, kindness to self, kindness to those who are close, and kindness to the enemy, to bring the enemy inside of our prayer and see in the enemy the primal innocence or atma, or the presence of God. So it's, it's, a, it's really an expression of, uh, but that means that those who come as assistants, it's a long road. Because it's easy to say you're more beautiful than you could believe. But to live that is a question of uh, the contacts, the eyes, the listening, the sense that you who are different and deeply wounded you have a gift to give to me. So it changes everything. I'm not a, a gift to give to you. You, uh, Eric, 
blind and deaf with his fragile body and his anguished face. He has a gift to, to give. And it's true that giving his bath to him every morning or in the evening we would put him in pajamas and then we would sit and pray together and sing and so and Eric would sometimes come and either sit on the knees the knees of one of us and and just rest and a, a sense of it was a moment of prayer the presence of God that he in his weakness was revealing but doesn't every mother say that, that the child is bringing more to her than what she's giving to mm. I mean, it's the mystery of the crack or the littleness that's bringing forth uh, the healing words which are not, I can do things for you. But then it's the discovery of, about God. The whole revelation of God is somewhere, you're my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And he's come to wash our feet. So it's not the God who's come to change us, but the God who's come to reveal this incredible revelation where God is saying to each one of us, you know, I'm glad you exist. You're super. You say, it reminds me of um, a story that was told by an Irish doctor some few years ago in the UK there was a uh, great scandal in one of the national health uh, boards or hospitals and uh, there was uh, a, lot, a lot of people had suffered or died as a result of mismanagement and so the, the government brought in a um, you know, had a commission and uh, they brought in uh, an American uh, expert I think Obama's advisor on health care and he also came up with a series of proposals, like 85 different <laughs> proposals, you know, for reforming the institution. And apparently he met with the Prime Minister, who might not have had time to read the whole thing. So the Prime Minister said to him, uh, what, uh, how would you summarize it? What, what went wrong? And this man said, a lack of love. And uh, it, what you're describing and what Lush uh, highlights, and I suppose what the world community also recognizes is that the, the manifestation of the real of God comes through the person, not, not through the system, not through the organization, however good or well-run it may or may not be, but it can only really come through the, in the, the person 
in relation, individuals in relationship, not even the necessarily the isolated individual, but the individual who's become a person through difficult and, imp and imperfect um, relationships. And um, the challenge, I suppose, is to, is to keep that spiritual truth and, uh, and respect it even in the institutions that we have to create. I mean, Lash is small, our meditation groups are small, and yet the world is big and there are millions of people who need help and organization and institutions to help them get through life. So this is the question, how do we, and this is what our Meditatio outreach program is, you know, in, in small ways, trying to explore. How do we bring this compassionate wisdom that you've described, how do we bring that into the systems, the organizations, the bureaucracies, which are necessary? You need health boards, you need uh, universities, you need uh, businesses and corporations. But how do we prevent those institutions from losing or denying this wisdom? Well, I think you mentioned that yesterday about the leader in Singapore. You know, there's a double element. In that. I mean, you described that yesterday. There's the power, the, but somewhere deeper than the power, he had lived an experience mm. which for him was not religious. He didn't even dare say it was spiritual, but there was something deeper. Mm. So Christian meditation is, is somewhere there that will humanize, change people, and help them to realize that life is growth in, in love. But it's a long road, and it means that there's going to be also um, the austerity, the fidelity, the, the brokenness, and so on. So uh, how to help uh, people who are in this world of creating the institution or making the institution work to realize that the institution finalized by relationship one person to another and how to help that relationship the nurse or the assistant or who to discover that they have to grow and it's and what is the spirituality that will help them to grow so I mean this is a big question in Lash is how to create a spirituality or how to further a spirituality and here we have an answer in the Christian meditation that if people are meditating 20 minutes morning and evening, things will happen. They will continue to grow. And then, as you said frequently, they will begin to taste the fruits of the Spirit, which are peace, love, mastery of self, openness, joy, and so on. So there'll be that inner person which uh, the man in Singapore uh, lived secretly, uh, and so there was the double element. There was what was visible and the invisible. So how to let that invisible and the meditation two times a day or one, whatever it is, will be gradually 
letting in flow into that other aspect, which is the organizational, the institution, where really people will be seen as what is important is that relationship with between the nurse and the patient, the relationship between. So, I mean, and Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, I think, it came at a moment uh, in his life. First of all, he had the crisis of aging, and secondly, his of losing his wife, and that made him, I'm sure, still strong and authoritative, but vulnerable. And I suspect that was where the light came in there. But it passed through him then, you know, clearly it passed through him into, into his, you know, into the population. It was amazing. So it's a welcoming of vulnerability who's going, that's going to change us. Yes, okay. The crack. Since we live in a world of suffering and we need so much healing in our lives and I love it when you talk about crack, that crack meaning, really, and the light coming out. And it seems, I see a question, it's an ancient Jewish question as well. When will the Messiah come? Of course, in Paul, he would say, now is the day of salvation. Today, he writes the gospel of the risen Christ. Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. I want to ask you, both Jean and when you work with Lash, where do you hear the question, when will the Messiah come? And Father Lawrence, in your work of prayer and meditation, where do you hear the, where or when do you hear the question, when will the Messiah come? Question. And the big question will be, it'll be such a surprise that will we recognize it? So Jesus says, be careful, because people will say, he's here, he's, he's there. But he says, no, it'll be a surprise. The big question is, we're open enough to recognize. It was the expectancy you were talking about. You know the story, it's, I'm sure you all know the story of the, the monastery that was uh, dying out, the old monks were dying off, and it all looked, looked as if it was going to become extinct. They were all very depressed and dragging themselves around. And then uh, the abbot one day met this rabbi out at the bottom of the garden and he was explaining this terrible situation. And um, the rabbi said to him, call a meeting of your monks and uh, tell them the Messiah is among you. So he did and the monks all started to look up with a little bit more interest in life. And I said, oh, it's Messiah, I wonder who it is, you know? 
Is it Jean? Is it uh, uh, Jose? Is it, I wonder who it is. It couldn't possibly be uh, Fritz, you know. So, uh, so they started talking. And as a result of this, over the next uh, few weeks or so, the whole spirit of the community began to change. And they looked at each other very differently. And of course then when visitors came to the monastery, they thought, oh, this is a nice, positive, hopeful, loving place. I think I might stay here for a while. So then new people began to join and the monastery was saved. And, and um, so maybe that is the, the, the answer really is, uh, it's like the end of the City of God by St. Augustine where he describes the the vision of God, the um, beatific vision, which will be the culmination of, of all of creation as we share in the vision of God. And he says, though beautifully, he says, it isn't going to be, we're all going to be sitting in different seats in a theater looking up at God on the throne on the stage with all the popes beside him on one side and all the angels and prophets on the other and you know this hierarchical vision this where there's an audience looking at god that isn't the beatific vision he says and then he says the beatific vision is when the the the, the people there will look will turn to each other and see god in each other's eyes And that is the vision, the beatific vision. And then St. Thomas Aquinas uh, picks this up, I think, and describes how the, the, the vision of God is, uh, leads to uh, this beatific happiness, not because I have got what I want, but because I see this pure happiness in you. And seeing you happy makes me happy. And then when you see that I'm happy, you become happier. And when I see that you're happier, that makes me even happier. So this sort of feedback, infinite feedback into happiness. I mean, that's... Maybe there, there will be a particular moment or a particular apparition of a second coming, I don't know, but... I think this, this is another way in which it can be understood now. Um, but the expectancy has to, has to then lead us not just into a projection into the future, but into the discovery of the present. <laughs>